0: Hi, I'm D.W. from Houston.
1: Hi, I'm Kristen from San Francisco.
0: Hi, I'm Graham from Vancouver, Canada. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. It's easy. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. Yes.
2: I'm Jesse Thorne. One of my guests this week on Bullseye is Chris Gethardt. He isn't super famous or anything, but he's a very funny actor and comedian. And for a while, he hosted a regular stage show at the UCB Theater in New York. The UCB is this, I don't know, 100 or so dark theater in a basement underneath a grocery store. And then one night, he put a video on YouTube addressed to P. Diddy. And a few tweets turned into a few dozen tweets turned into a few hundred tweets which turned into P. Diddy showing up at the UCB theater to do Chris Gethard's show. You want to hear
3: the craziest thing that was that happened with him? No, of course I don't want to. Sure, let's just move on then. Uh, no, all he, right, all right. <laughs> his assistant before the show was like, hey, at the UCB, do you guys have any TVs or computers? And I was like, yeah, we have all that. Why? And she's like, well, there's this weird thing with Diddy where sometimes when he looks at a TV or a computer... It breaks. And I was like, come on. Like, I, was, I didn't say it to her. But I was kind of rolling my eyes like, you know, like, what's, what's in it for her to convince me that Diddy's magical?
2: Now, keep in mind, the UCB theater is tiny, and the place was packed. And there had been tons of press leading up to Diddy's appearance on Chris's show.
3: So it was just me and Diddy in the green room. And they said, you know, it's time for you guys to go on stage. And we had prepared this video package, but we got to the tech booth, and this video was playing. And he's like, oh, what's this? Oh, that's funny. And he watched it for a second, then walked away, and it broke. The sound was off by like 30 seconds. And this was a DVD we had tested. He just broke it with his mind. (laughs) He broke it with his special powers. He is magical. It's Bullseye.
2: This week, Chris Gethard on his new memoir, A Bad Idea I'm About to Do, and the upsides of cable access. The McElroy brothers from My Brother, My Brother, and Me offer solutions to listeners' pressing pop culture problems. And Ren Weschler explains why Tom Hanks looks so doggone creepy in Polar Express. His new book is The Uncanny Valley. The good stuff and just the good stuff this week on Bullseye. Let's go! Let's kick things off this week with some rap picks from our friend Andrew Nas, proprietor of the popular blog Cocaine Blunts and Hip Hop Tapes. It's been a little bit since Andrew's been on the show, so let's take a listen to some picks from the past month or so in rap music. How's it going, Jesse? It's going great. we got a new name. Feeling good, looking good. You look tremendous. Thank you for joining me in the studio here in Los Angeles. I know. I'm psyched. This is my first time in person. This is exciting. Young L. Let's talk about a gas station by... S.L. Jones. S.L. Jones is part of past guest on this program, Killer Mike's group, uh, Grind Time Records. Tell me a little bit about this song.
1: Uh, Well, it's produced by Young L, who's probably one of the most talented hip-hop producers alive, but he's just kind of stuck in that Bay Area trap where he, you know, he makes little weird mixtapes that he throws out to the internet and nobody really listens to. So hopefully, with their powers combined, they can do something. She
4: ain't got a clue. Okay, this right here is my flag. No debit, no credit, only cash. My face card, you can swipe that. When you're eating good, that's a light snack. Let's chop it up, we can dice that. I show a lot of love and get it right back. 23rd in Wolf's Shout out to my sis, shouty say she miss me, shout out to my ex, I just want the money, the power and respect, they like me but don't invite me cause they see me as a threat, I know it's so intimidating, your career disintegrating, cut a duggin' off, look at Jones, he regenerated, I'm the newest favorite, everything else is old news, label got you chillin' on the shelf, From from froze food, what up cuz if you crippin',
2: it really is a nice combination aesthetically uh, with this kind of Bay Area electro-ish beat matching up with a, the with a S- a southeastern style of S.L. Jones.
1: Well, yeah, and I mean, I think a lot of southern rap in general draws from the same place Young L does, which is too short, like too short. Created the blueprint for trunk music, and that's this is just a modernization of all that.
2: I think you'll find often that that a lot of the great Bay Area rappers, if they have a fan base outside of the Bay Area, um, it, it is often in Texas and the Southeast, uh, where they really appreciate that that trunk rattling music. Yeah, definitely. Our next song is from uh, an artist who has been. Uh, Relatively heralded uh, among our list, and that's ASAP Rocky, who recently signed a, a big money major label deal. He's been touted as the savior of New York rap uh, with a very distinctively not New York y style. Uh, there's a guest verse on this song. It's called Kissin' Pink. It's by ASAP Rocky, but the uh, guest verse is from ASAP Ferg. And uh, Ferg's verse is actually the more distinctive of, of, of the verses on this song.
1: Yeah, Ferg kind of does this whole like half-drunk, kind of like a Fabo from D4L style, or like Big Psych, who used to always sing on the Tupac songs. He just jumps on the track, and I think it's the most memorable verse on the tape, really. Hey,
5: now I'm hella smoke Talking on my cell and I got that purple on me. She sipping on my styrofoam cup, Telling me she wanna mop, but I ain't got no condoms on me. She claiming I'm a Pepsi, cause I'm sipping big mo when I'm on that screw juice. She's sipping till it's MD. Purple on the mustache, now it's time to you. And I wanna chop the words of you, girl. Moving like it's turtle time, feeling like the world is my mind. i be on my Frankenstein. I stay on my money grind And I'm going out of my mind Flying through the purple sky And I'm in a different world And you kind of look like Jasmine Guy And I'm kissing on that pink juice Sipping on that pimp juice He's All that I
1: want His producers are insane. Production lineup is all this foggy, kind of like, spaced out lo-fi rap
2: I, I think it's kind of neat it sort of reminded me of some of the melodicism of the Houston rap that, that has been the, a, a big influence on this crew but a, a little bit of that vaguely threatening goofiness of the Dipset. yeah it even reminded me a little bit of, of in a funny way of one of your favorites the much more sort of sad and mournful Zero yeah,
1: yeah, I can see that. But it's not a sad verse by any means. It kind not of flips it. Well, that's the <laughs> interesting thing about Rocky is, like, he kind of takes the aesthetics from these really dark southern rap scenes like Memphis and Houston, but then strikes out all of the, like, evil and dark thoughts and just kind of raps about fashion and being cool. <laughs>
3: She's all that I want.
1: Well, uh,
2: Nas, thank you so much for joining us once again on Bullseye. Yeah, thanks for having me. Andrew Nas is the proprietor of cocaine blunts and hip-hop tapes. You can also read his writing uh, on The Fader and on NPR and The Wire and uh, all kinds of other places. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Chris Gethard, is an unconventional comedian based in New York City. He's the host of The Chris Gethard Show, which is, gosh, it is like the newest version of a very old thing. It is the classic late at night, get your friends together and make a public access television show comedy program revamped for an era where... That is what everyone does in a world of internet media and podcasting. It's actually on cable access television in Manhattan, but its real following is also on the internet. It grew out of his stage show, which famously had a relationship with the rapper and empresario P. Diddy that led to Diddy eventually appearing on the show. Um, He has also been the star of a sitcom on Comedy Central, and his new book is called A Bad Idea I'm About to Do, True Tales of Seriously Poor Judgment and Stunningly Awkward Adventure. It basically tells the story of his life as a man with, as he describes it, the emotional stability of a pregnant woman. Chris Gethard, uh, welcome to
3: Bullseye. Thank you for having me that dis- that description of my life made me a little sad <laughs> hearing all the things i've done said back to me but between public access tv and the emotional stability line wow i have set myself up for some life huh
2: <laughs> but chris you are you are a genuinely beloved man i mean you have you're a man who has built a cult of personality in new york city comedy that is uh, unparalleled, I think, to, to the point where you can have a public access television program that features you surrounded by, as far as I can tell, dozens of people <laughs> in fruit costumes. Yeah.
3: And yeah. with kazoos <laughs> and ukuleles. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Those things happen. There is a man who dresses as a banana that comes to all my shows. That's true. There's a man called the human fish. <laughs> These are all things that happen on my show, on my public access TV show.
2: <laughs> I, I want to start talking by talking about uh, New Jersey, which is really at the heart of your book, which is largely about your uh, sort of growing up and your adolescent and post-adolescent years. You describing your uh, childhood in suburban New Jersey it really read to me like as though your childhood was, was children roaming the
3: streets like packs of wolves. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that's inaccurate. <laughs> 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 I, grew up, I grew up in a neighborhood that was very, very Irish. And like every kid I knew had, uh, would wear blue jeans and a white T-shirt and had a crew cut. Every kid. It was like West Side Story. It was weird. In the summers when I didn't have school, pretty much my mom would open the door at 10 a.m. and she'd be like, all right, see you at dinner. And we'd just go and see what trouble we could get into, which was fun as a kid. But it was only when I was an adult that I started to realize kind of how messed up and odd things were around the town that I grew up.
2: What kind of stuff did you do that you realized was not all that typical for uh, someone that was born in the beginning of the 1980s?
3: This is one that didn't make the book. It wound up on the, uh, the cutting room floor, so to speak. But like I grew up – the first house I ever lived in, I grew up next to – the kid who lived next door to me was a dwarf. He had dwarfism and he was about six or seven years older than me. But because we were the same size, our parents were like, yeah, you guys just go hang out. So – I look back on that, and that's not—that's not a cool thing to do to me or the or the dwarf. That's not cool. I was like three or four. This kid was nine or ten. But because we were both little, that was the logic that had us play together. So he was furious, you know. This kid who had to hang out with this little infant, and uh, he used to torment me. He used to. Uh, like push me around and uh, he always, there was a sandbox in my backyard and he always used to throw the sand on me, like intentionally would throw it in my diaper and I'd always go nuts and cry and tell my parents, but they could never catch him in the act. So when I was, as my parents tell me, when I was three years old, the, the dwarf pushed me too far finally and I grabbed a wiffle bat and I beat him. I, be- I beat him with it, this child who was older than me. And my parents still to this day laugh and they're like, yeah, and we, we watched from the window and um, you know, we were laughing because like, he, had, he had been pushing you around and you were finally fighting back and he was getting what he deserved. And I'm like, that's not – that was the sort of thing that I got older and I was like, that's not normal. Your parents shouldn't watch from a window as you beat a dwarf with a bat at the age of three. That's not normal. That's not a normal way to grow up. That's not a funny story. That's not a funny, charming family story that we should be telling at every holiday. That's weird. There's like nine different things about that that are really weird. That's a scene from a David Lynch movie. Yeah, my whole life, man, my whole life. Once I got to college, I was like, oh, man, there's like rules to life that I never even knew about. (laughs) I didn't even know about this. So being raised that way was psychologically damaging. But I, I look back now, and now that I'm a little more well-adjusted, hopefully it led to a funny book.
2: Were you the kind of a geek as an adolescent who, who schemes
3: and fumes? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was an angry young man, for sure. I would actually say when I first saw the movie Rushmore, I was astounded at how similar... <laughs> Max Fisher was to me because I was that kid. I was the kid who did every activity. When I was in high school, there wasn't a day that I didn't stay after school to do something. I, was, I just had my hands in everything. And I was also similarly very, very um, angry. I was, I, was, I was an angry little guy.
2: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is uh, the comedian Chris Gethard. He's the host of the public access and internet television show, The Chris Gethard Show. And his new memoir is called A Bad Idea I'm About to Do, True Tales of Seriously Poor Judgment and Stunningly Awkward Adventure. So you write a little bit in the book about um, sort of realizing that you were bipolar. Yeah. You know, b- bipolarity, the, the two poles of Of bipolarity or or mania and and depression. Yeah. And I guess we've got to pick one. So why why don't we start with the depression? How did the the depression manifest itself for you when it was at its worst?
3: I would have, um, you know, when it would show up on a consistent basis, it would be, you know, uh, feelings of gloom, stretches, like just the uh, sort of feeling down constantly feeling exhausted and also being entirely convinced that that was how the world was. And also, if anyone ever did anything negative, I would just constantly allow myself to con- convince myself that that was the base level of people, that people were negative, that people were uh, had ill intentions. And that you know just snowballs. When it was at its worst, I would have panic attacks and anxiety attacks. And probably the worst thing that ever happened to me was actually – I thought I was out of the woods in two thousand seven. I was a guest writer for Saturday night Live, and it was like my big my biggest break up until that point and I felt great and i I went in for two weeks I worked there and that's the dream job for a comedy kid, you know and then I submitted this packet to write for them the end of that summer, and I knew they all in, enjoyed me and liked me and the packet i looked back i turned i turned in it was just really watered down drek. it was just an attempt to write what they are you know. Here's what they already do, which is such a bad way to approach anything. And I didn't get hired. And I, I, I was like, I blew my shot. That was my biggest shot. That's my only shot I'm going to get. And I blew it. And I had an anxiety attack that lasted uninterrupted for over three days. So at its worst, I would have attacks like that. And the last, that, was the, that was the last big one I had. That was in 2007.
2: Um, we talked a little bit about depression, and the other side of bipolarity is mania.
3: Oh, yeah. Which, that part's fun. Yeah, from a by all accounts is tremendous. Oh yeah, that's the best. You feel awesome. Everybody, you know how to talk to everybody. You can be super charming. You'll like do all these risky, impressive things. No regard for your own safety. It's fun. Mania. I won't lie, is fun. At least in my case, like my friends enjoyed being around me when I'd be like, "All right, let's. We got to go do this." I remember once <laughs> sitting up all night with my friends, being like, "Here's what we're doing." We're going to write a play tonight. The play is going to be called Time Phone. It's about a phone that makes calls through time. We're going to perform it in the ATM booth of a bank. Who's with me? Let's go. By the end of the night tonight, we're performing a play we write tonight in an ATM booth. And everybody's like laughing at that. And I look back and I'm like, wow, I was completely unhinged. I really wanted to do that. I was like ready to go on that. And that's like fun and funny. But geez, man, I was not in control (laughs) at all. When we
2: come back in just a second, Chris Gethard actually confronts in real life the people who write horrible things about him on the internet. Why? I don't know. It's kind of amazing. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Hey, podcast listeners, review our show in iTunes. It makes a big difference and it only takes a second. I'm waiting for you to do it. You're opening iTunes now. You're typing in Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. You're clicking on review. Now you're clicking on that fifth star. Now you're typing in why the show is so great. Now I'm thanking you. Great work.
4: Hello there, my name's Graham Clark And I'm Dave Shumka And together we host a podcast called Stop Podcasting Yourself This is a file that you download from the internet And then you listen to it in your pod
0: What's that about, you ask?
4: Well, who are you to ask? Who do you think you are? Yeah, get lost, bozo (laughs) We're a couple of stand-up comedians In Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada And every week, we bring a guest on the show Sometimes they're Canadian, sometimes they're not Sometimes they're a ghost
0: It's like you're sitting in on a friendly
4: uh, afternoon chat plus we're Canadian so you get a tax break (laughs) you can find us on iTunes or online at MaximumFun.org you know
2: what's great social media so social that's why you should follow us on Twitter at Bullseye and like us on Facebook just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne once again, MaximumFun.org and Bullseye are proud to partner with the SF Sketch Fest, our favorite comedy festival in the entire world. On Saturday, January 21st, at Cobb's Comedy Club in San Francisco, we'll be presenting An Afternoon with Eagleheart, featuring Chris Elliott, along with Brett Gelman, Maria Thayer, and Andy Blitz, and show creators Michael Komen, Andrew Weinberg, and co-executive producer Jason Woliner in a lively and humorous panel. And on Friday, January 20th at Cobb's Comedy Club, we'll present John Hodgman, An Evening of My Expertise. It's an evening with John Hodgman, contributor to The Daily Show, former guest host of this program, host of the Judge John Hodgman podcast, and of course, best-selling author of The Areas of My Expertise, more information than you require, and the recently released That Is All. You can find information about these fantastic shows at MaximumFun.org and more information about the SF Sketchfest online at sfsketchfest.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Chris Gethard, is a comedian based in New York City. Uh, his new memoir is called A Bad Idea I'm About to Do. It's uh, his life story as told in a series of Bad Decisions, <laughs> uh, largely predicated on a lifetime of emotional instability. Um, uh, but he, he's a sweet and talented guy. He's also the host of The Chris Gethard Show, uh, which went from a stage show in New York City at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater to a public access television show and uh, internet television show, which lives online at the com. I think that... Um, The combination of inventiveness and fearlessness and doggedness has been sort of the marker of your comedy and your kind of 18-month, somewhat quixotic, but ultimately successful quest to get uh, P. Diddy to show up (laughs) on your... um, stage show uh in New York City is uh, is a really wonderful example of that. I want to play a little bit of this video that you made to kick this effort off. <laughs> and I should explain that that while you will only hear the audio, uh it is worth noting that uh this is a webcam video. <laughs> uh it is at night and you are you appear to be in bed shirtless.
3: Yes, all of that is true. Okay. <laughs> so, I believe this was shot on Christmas Eve. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, what's up, Diddy? My name is Chris Gethard, and you don't know me at all. But I'm a comedian. I perform at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater in New York, 26th Street and 8th Avenue. And each month, I do a show called The Chris Gethard Show. And I'm reaching out to you because I want to live in a world where I can make a video like this. And you'll somehow see it. And then you'll come and you'll make an appearance on my show, even if that appearance is 30 seconds long. You'll just walk in and you'll wave hello and you'll say... Yes, things like this can happen, and the crowd will go crazy, and you can leave, you can hang out, whatever you want. But I want to live in a world where something like that is possible. So I'm going to start tweeting you. I'm going to encourage people who are following me to tweet you. We're not going to be rude about it. And if you actually see it, maybe you'll come by.
2: I wonder if it's something of either that manic side of you or something that you learned from that manic side of you that... Makes you think of something like this and then say, not just, not even just I'm going to do this, but we're going to do this. Yeah.
3: I mean, I think it, I think, you know, I had a long period of my life where I would get out of control and, um, you know, would intentionally sort of put myself in chaotic situations. But I think that now that I'm older, there's a controlled chaos aspect to these things that I do, you know?
2: I think, like a lot of really successful people, and especially really successful creative people, Diddy has a little bit of that feeling about him too. Like he could just, like he could just jump into the ocean
3: and, you know, learn to ride a shark. I think that's completely true. His assistant, I had many funny conversations with his assistant leading up to the event when it became clear it would actually happen. And one of I said, you know, it must be pretty crazy at times being Diddy's assistant, huh? And she was like, yeah, probably the craziest it got was there was one day where we stayed up for four days straight and it was really fun. But eventually I just like started crying and breaking down and he was like, what's going on? What's up? And she was like, I have to sleep. And he was like, oh, right. I don't have to. So sometimes I forget other people have to go ahead, (laughs) like do what you need to do. And he's just, he's magical.
2: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is uh, the comedian Chris Gethard. He's the host of the public access and internet television show, The Chris Gethard Show, and his new memoir is called A Bad Idea I'm About to Do, True Tales of Seriously Poor Judgment and Stunningly Awkward Adventure. There's something about public access television, Chris, Yeah, Yeah. um, that... I loved it immediately when I heard that <laughs> you were starting a public access TV show. And it. I imagine that part of why you did it was because public access TV stations have a bunch of TV equipment
3: that you can use. Yes, you're a very smart man. If we wanted to, uh, after after we did Diddy at UCB, we weren't going to top that. We did three or four monthly shows after that. And that show had been, the, the when we did our show at the theater had a lot of buzz. And Diddy, it was like, how are we going to, we're never going to get a bigger pop than we got off of that show. So it needed to change and public access. It was like, if, if we wanted to rent the facility they have, it would cost us thousands of dollars a week. And there all you have to do is fill out paperwork.
2: Watching the show is a really interesting experience <laughs> because it feels like, it, it, it feels like you are doing everything in your power to create... Um, to create a a two-way experience out of a one-way experience, (laughs) to create something that is almost like social media out of television. You are surrounded by people at all times. Yeah. Um, You sit in a—like, you are the host of the show, but you are typically sitting in a panel of, like, 12 different people (laughs) um, talking to the audience, taking calls— um, introducing people, like you're, you're basically just at all times with 17 other people and also interacting with the internet at the same time.
3: Yeah. One of the things I enjoy about the public access show the most is that I am often in the middle of just chaos. The host of the show is the lowest status individual <laughs> many, many times. I, I often don't have control. I'm often being made fun of. And at times I've been physically beaten on the show. And that's all by my own design, but I like making it very clear of the guy who's supposed to be in charge traditionally is the last one in charge, and the person who's most in charge is the person calling on the phone from four states away. That's who really defines the show.
2: I want to ask you about this video that you made um, in which you – brought someone who had <laughs> written horrible things about you on the internet yes. into a studio and
3: interviewed him? Yes, this guy. Um, I did a TV show on Comedy Central called Big Lake, and it was supposed to be my big break. You know, Adam McKay and Will Ferrell were producing it. They had plucked me out of nowhere, and it was a great opportunity. I don't regret any of it, but it didn't work out, as TV shows sometimes don't. And this guy was particularly not a fan of my performance on the show and he went on IMDb and he said – he put up a brutal, a brutal, brutal message board post and uh, probably the highlight being when he encouraged my agent to kill herself, to hang herself. And also I don't have a headshot on IMDb and he said, good call. You're going to want to distance yourself from you as much as possible. It's pretty witty but it, I mean it was harsh. Um, and initially, I tracked that dude down because I thought it would be funny to stop where he lived in the middle of the country and confront him there. And he wrote me back some very, very aggressive, crazy messages when I found out who he was and contacted him through Facebook. But then when he, he visited New York, we, uh, we met up and we went to one of the classrooms at the UCB Training Center and he walked in. We turned on the camera. We had – it was like a maybe 11 or 12-minute conversation and then he left. My agent's female, but when you said maybe she should have hung herself, that's stung. Yeah. So I have some anxiety about, you know, career stuff. But I could see why you'd be nervous. <laughs> based I mean, on based on, not on that again. Like, no, go not, for again, just you know, comedy. I know a
0: lot of comedians and just that nervousness that you all oh, have. Oh yeah. That all of you
3: all have. I, this city will crush you, yeah. I, mean, I bake. You know. You I, do. I bake cookies and bread. I mean, would you, not you a lot say of so? Would you say that you are better at baking than well, I am Absolutely. At <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I'm not that great at baking. I kind of expected him to say, you know, oh, it's the internet. People go overboard. You say all this crazy, exaggerated stuff. He stuck to his guns. He hated me, and I give him credit for that.
2: The other day I was um, compiling a video, mixing down a video. I can't remember what it's called. And that <laughs> takes like 15 minutes or something yeah. on my computer. It's kind of a long video. And so I was, I had this really profoundly idle time on my computer and I typed my name in, in, into the internet and, um, and I just found this wellspring of horrible things people were
3: saying about me. Sure. And sure. I am a
2: really minor public figure.
3: <laughs> as am I, <laughs> as am I. But people look for anyone they can lash out against, they do. And I got to say... I can't change what I look like. I can't change my voice. So I just got to own those things. And I feel like I always just assume that people who lash out and tear me apart on those things have probably have some – their anger indicates bigger problems than my problem with what they're saying, if that makes sense. I assume there are things in their life – driving them to do that, that are worse than it's going to make me feel. So I just choose not to get affected by it. And in fact, I try to use it as much as possible to get more material, more comedy, more ways to connect with people.
2: Chris Gethard, I I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on
3: Bullseye. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm sorry that so much of it exposed me as a uh, manic, depressive, angry, uh, violence-ridden weirdo. Chris
2: Gethard's new book is called A Bad Idea I'm About to Do True Tales of Seriously Poor Judgment and Stunningly <laughs> Awkward Adventure You can watch him on The Chris Gethard Show at the thechrisgethardshow.com It's Bullseye I'm Jesse Thorne The McElroy brothers are not experts at anything. However, they do host the advice podcast, My Brother, My Brother, and Me, at MaximumFun.org. From their homes in Austin, Texas, Cincinnati, Ohio, and Huntington, West Virginia— Justin, Travis, and Griffin Matheloy dispense advice on a wide variety of subjects in which they have no expertise. And we've invited them to Bullseye to dispense some advice on matters pop cultural. Uh, Justin, uh, Griffin, Travis, welcome to Bullseye.
5: Well, thank you. Thanks, 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 thanks so much having for us. having us, Jesse. You really hit the non expert thing much yeah. harder
2: than we assumed you would. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here we go, guys. Here's something from Darren. He writes, I have a three-year-old son, and my wife and I are still trying to figure out what order to show him the Star Wars movies in. Chronological by release date, or chronological by when they take place in the Star Wars universe, or something more creative. My wife thinks we should go four, five, one, two, three, (laughs) six. Um, That really would make Yoda's arc much more epic.
5: (laughs)
3: the bible tells us that you shall not suffer a witch to live and the star wars movies is all about space witchcraft so i would Mm -hmm. suggest maybe for a purpose-driven life that you don't let them watch the star wars movies
5: all i know is that when i have kids we will watch the fourth fifth and sixth and then I will vehemently deny the existence of the other three. Yeah, just don't show them to them. They're bad things. Your kid's going to end up... <laughs> I, I, they're going to end up... <laughs> your like, kid's going to be sad. You're going to make your child sad. Your job is to protect them from... I think I would say you run a real risk if you show them one, two, and three first of them just bailing on the whole thing. Like <laughs> chalk it up to like when my dad tried to make me listen to, to Billy Joel and he started with Captain Jack when he should have gone straight to Piano Man. He just ruined me on the entire experience forever, you know?
2: So your final recommendation, gentlemen, is uh, only to show him the ones from the late 1970s and early 1980s? Yes. Or, if you want to get up in heaven, skip the whole, the whole kit and caboodle. Here's a question from Russ. Hey, is Kesha a lousy rapper? or is she just sing talking over a beat kind of i don't know <laughs> please help i guess the question is is she a singy rapper or a rappy singer
5: i think if, if we learned anything from the super bowl shuffle it said if you're going to be bad at rapping you better be good at football and as far as i <laughs> as, far as, as far as i know kesha is not good at football I'm not saying she's bad. She's probably she's wiry, clearly not re- not afraid to get dirty. Yeah. Um, I think that Kesha's strong suit has always been being instantly forgettable. You're saying that her strength is once she has the football, no one's going to think to stop her. They'll just let her walk on by because what what's she gonna do? Mm-hmm. Then touch touchdown Kesha.
2: Justin McElroy, Travis McElroy, and Griffin McElroy are the hosts of My Brother, My Brother, and Me. The free podcast is available at MaximumFun.org or in your iTunes or other podcasting software. If you have a question for them, email them at mbmbam at MaximumFun.org or Twitter them at mbmbam. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us on Bullseye. Well, thank you for having thank you. Us. Thanks, Chief. You know how animated characters have those creepy dead eyes? Lawrence Weschler, longtime writer for The New Yorker, explains to us why and talks about what it's like to write about aesthetics. When we come back in just a minute on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Hey podcast listeners, guess what? A friend of ours at Microsoft, and when I say a friend of ours at Microsoft, that's not a metaphor, it's an actual friend of ours that works at Microsoft, gave us an Xbox, and we want to give it to you. So, this week, whoever posts the coolest message on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash bullseye with Jesse Thorne will win a free Xbox. I'm not even making that up. It's even an Xbox 360, that's the newest and coolest one. This is real! I swear to God, Facebook.com slash bullseye with Jesse Thorne, post something cool and fun on the Facebook page, and uh, you know, whoever puts the post the best thing, like a picture or a fun words or whatever, will get a free Xbox in the mail. It's pretty awesome. So do that!
1: Production of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is supported in part by the menswear blog, Put This On. Presenting the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every 60 days. More information at putthison.com. And by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com.
2: You can find our awesome new Bullseye logo on T-shirts in three colors at MaxFunStore.com. That's MaxFunStore.com. If you already missed The Sound of Young America, don't worry. In honor of the launch of Bullseye, we've got a free torrent at MaximumFun.org of our entire recorded archive of The Sound of Young America. 15 gigabytes of audio and video, all absolutely free. Hundreds and hundreds of hours of audio infotainment, all free to download and distribute. Find it in your favorite torrent tracker or online at MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Lawrence Weschler, known to his friends, which I will now presume to be as Ren is one of the nation's foremost practitioners of narrative nonfiction. Uh, He's written a whole pile of books, which include uh, Mr. Wilson's Cabinet of Wonders about the Museum of Jurassic Technology in Los Angeles, which is maybe the most amazing place in the world and one of my favorite books ever. It won itself a, a whole pile of prizes. He also wrote the gorgeous, I mean, just, Absolutely stunning McSweeney's book, Everything That Rises, a book of convergences, based on his McSweeney's column of um, aesthetic convergences, the the things that uh, uh, the aesthetic resonances between things. It's, it's uh, hard to explain, but spectacularly beautiful. His new book is called Uncanny Valley Adventures in the Narrative. It's a collection of works written over the last 10 years or so. Although I have to say maybe the most important thing on his CV is that he attended UC Santa Cruz, which also happens to be my alma mater. Although when he attended in the 1970s, it was a very, very different place.
4: I, I was in a, a Latin class with three students with Norman O'Brown, the, the great uh, kind of new age philosopher. Um, and at the end of the class, we sacrificed a goat. <laughs> <laughs> so there was that sort of thing, but there was also—I mean, it was—it was actually a pretty wonderful place. And 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 when asked what I was studying, my grandmother used to say, "Nothing that will bring him any good." <laughs> <laughs> but actually, it was—it was pretty interesting. Actually, it's fascinating because that class, my class of 200 students, three of them became New Yorker writers. I mean, that's yeah. a remarkable thing.
2: Yeah. When I when I say to someone that I went to UC Santa Cruz, they usually know. Uh, one of three things. Besides just a sort of general impression of a you know pot smoke haze mm-hmm. hanging over the campus, one is that the the uh that the sports team or the mascot is the banana slugs. One is that uh, John Travolta wore a banana slugs t-shirt in Pulp Fiction. Exactly. Um, and the third one that they sometimes know is that the only graduate program at UC Santa Cruz is this master's program called history of consciousness in those days. Yeah. And I think that that idea of being able to take a huge breadth of information and synthesize it into something rather than just receiving knowledge and possibly creating knowledge. Right. But that kind of interpretation of a breadth of knowledge is something that maybe was a hallmark especially it, that it, era. it
4: absolutely was and and for example i often say that that the most important lesson i got uh, as a writer i got from a marine biologist which was the kind of thing that could happen there was a guy named todd newberry there you might remember him uh, who had been a student of pietagorsky's a, a cello student and i was floundering trying to write a paper for him on some amorphous subject and he took me aside and he said you know when you're trying to write a big an essay on a big, huge subject, it's a little bit like you're walking on the beach, and you come upon a dead sea walrus, and you're curious why it died.
2: As weird. as happened to all of us. <laughs> I said, that's Dope. a perfect metaphor. <laughs>
4: and I said, yeah, right. I don't walk on beaches. I don't care about that. But, but he says, you know, you can do one or two things. You can pick up that piece of driftwood on the side and start bashing its flank— you know, and, and, you know, make a hash of the blubber and make a hash of your arms and just make a mess. Or you can take that piece of driftwood, go over to that boulder, sit down, pick up that stone, and start sharpening the driftwood. And it's going to take you all afternoon. But at the end, you'll have a blade. And you'll come back and you'll just slice. It'll take you five minutes. He said, when you're dealing with huge amorphous subjects, don't ask huge amorphous questions. You know, spend 95% of your time honing the questions. Which has been a huge... I mean, th- that was a... When I went when I to cover Bosnia, for example, what well, it turns out, I will go do 40 interviews over a period of 10 days, 15 days. Part of what I'm doing with the interviews is trying to get the information, but part of what I'm doing is trying to figure out what the question is that opens it up. I want to talk about... Uh... Such as, why are we sacrificing this goat?
2: <laughs> This reminds me of of the uh, the piece in this book that lends the yeah. title to your book. Yeah. I'm gonna play. I'm gonna play a clip from a, an episode of the sitcom Thirty Rock uh, that was based around the concept of the uh, Uncanny Valley, which is the title of your book and also the title piece of your book. And in this scene, uh, Judah Friedlander's character is explaining to Tracy Morgan's character why. Tracy Morgan's character will never be able to successfully combine uh, his two great passions, video games and pornography.
4: A porn video game? It can't be done. Look, Trey, history's greatest perverts have tried. Walt Disney, Larry Flint, the Japanese, but they can't do it because of the uncanny valley. Let me show you something. Check out this chart. You see, as artificial representations of humans become more and more realistic, they reach a point where they stop being endearing and become creepy. Tell it to me in Star Wars. All right. We like R2-D2 and C-3PO. They're nice. And up here, we have a real person, like Han Solo.
5: He acts like he doesn't care, but he does.
4: But down here, we have a CGI stormtrooper or Tom Hanks in the Polar Express. I'm scared. Get me out of there. And that's the problem. You're in the valley now, and it's impossible to get out.
2: I actually thought that was a pretty good explanation of the uncanny valley. Um, I, I just Before we get into the sort of implications
4: of this... How do you come across a story like this? Well, almost always I start my own stories i, I may almost generate my own, and it has now gotten to the point cause ever since i 've you know written about the Museum of Jurassic technology and and a guy who draws money and spends his drawings and a pair of twins who uh, who 've been having a conversation about perception since toddlerhood and, and, and invent a whole new way of drawing the world. Uh, Generally, people say if you like that, you would really like this, you know, and, and they tend to be like that. Uh, invariably, I get drawn into things that I don't know anything about, and and as was the case here, in this particular case, I got a call from Wired. This was in two thousand and two, and they said weird things are going on in the digital animation world. And I said, but I don't know anything about digital animation. They said, exactly. So go do it. And 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 in this particular case, they said uh, all I knew was that that there was that they seemed to be hitting a wall. And the wall that they were hitting, they knew how to, to do crowds. They knew how to do uh, battle scenes. They knew how to do Quidditch matches digitally. I and mean, when you see Troy, the film Troy, that, that all that battle stuff is entirely digital, you know. and they can do that, and it's convincing. But they were hitting a wall with faces. Um, they could do hands, which are very hard, if you think about it. But faces were hard, if I were to summarize, for two reasons. Uh, first of all, In exactly the same way that the brain is the most complex thing we have ever encountered in the universe. I mean, there's nothing as just combinatorially the number of connections and so forth is just astonishing. The face is the most complicated part of the body, much more complicated than your belly or your thigh or even your feet, which is partly because it has 42 muscles or 46 muscles, most of which don't attach to bone. They attach to other muscles. I mean, if you think about if you now extend your hand and your arm and bring it back, that's just Newtonian, that's just levers and cranks and so but this other stuff gets very complicated. So this thing itself is very complicated. But secondly, we perceive we are able to perceive faces with much, much more particularity. Than anything else, and that gets us into your uncanny valley situation. Once again, I mean the uncanny valley is, for example, that, that it, uh, it was. It's by the way the phrase of a great Japanese Buddhist roboticist. I love saying that, named Masahiro Mori, and he came up with this idea years ago. He said that you make a robot that's 90 percent lifelike, that's fantastic. 95 percent lifelike, it's incredible. 96 percent lifelike, it's a disaster. Because, because it,
2: stops being, uh, it stops being a really lifelike robot and, because, and starts being yeah, a really
4: robot-like person. Yeah, a creepy person. Uh, uh, the technical term in, in, in the digital animation field trenches is icky. It gets <laughs> icky. And what's fascinating with a, with a body in motion, is at 96%, but then it, at by like 98%, if you just keep plowing along, you'll get there, and then you're getting to the point where it's good enough. But it turns out with the face, you have to get to 99.9999. They don't know how many nines it has to be. In other words, the slightest thing wrong uh, is is catastrophic. And and it, they got there with Shrek, by the way, Shrek 3, the Princess Fiona character. They were so good at it that it ended up freaking out the audience of children who went to see it. And they had to literally dial back what they could do. And so, I mean, what's fascinating about this in all kinds of ways uh, uh, is... In a way, you're asking the question, can you digitally animate a soul?
2: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Lawrence Weschler. He's one of the country's best writers of narrative nonfiction, and especially narrative nonfiction about the aesthetic. His newest book is a collection of his nonfiction called Uncanny Valley, Adventures in the Narrative. It ranges from stories about people escaping war criminals to stories about monumental installation art. I want to talk to you about this story business. Okay. And so I got into this a little bit a couple months ago with uh, Errol Morris, who you mentioned being friends with right, in the book. Right. It's pretty cool. I think he's probably one of the top guys of the world. <laughs> that guy's awesome.
4: Um, but Did you see his Umbrella Man thing, by the way? Oh, yeah, it was, was great. Was great? Oh, yeah. So you should te-
2: watch that on the New York Times website, this uh, little mini-documentary he did about um, this guy holding an umbrella at the, uh, at the site of the Kennedy assassination.
4: And uh, in the piece, uh, they quote Updike. He said that his learning of the existence of the Umbrella
2: Man made him speculate that in... Historical research, if you put any event under a microscope, you will find a whole dimension of completely weird, incredible things going on. Let's look at it through this umbrella man. So what happens in this umbrella man is that there's this guy holding an umbrella uh, standing next to the spot where Kennedy's motorcade is passing uh, as Kennedy is shot, mm-hmm. and he appears in the Zapruder film, and and was for many years the subject of huge amounts of speculation on why what this guy's role. He looks was. like
4: he looks like he's fallen out of a Marguerite painting. Yeah, know, he's and, and, holding.
2: He looks like yeah. I mean, he looks like he could be walking guy, down the street in Mary Poppins. Yeah,
4: and the only guy in all of Dallas with an umbrella, and it's right where the assassination happens.
2: And so naturally. There were tens of years, I guess, 10-ish years of people projecting everything onto this point of information. They have this one datum, which is this man is holding an umbrella and he shouldn't be because it's not raining. And
4: at the place where it happens. Not any other place, just at that place.
2: And the human mind wants to make that into a story. Yeah wants nothing more than to make that into a story right. because it does not fit the exactly. pattern of our expectation. Exactly, And we want to make anything that doesn't fit the pattern of
4: our expectation into a story of some kind. It, by the way, that thing is also, there's a fascinating thing called, I think it's called Capgras Syndrome, mm-hmm. which is people, this happens surprisingly and, discour- and certainly often where people have strokes or something, and when they come out of it, they're convinced that their family are imposters that their sister comes to see them and they say, you're not my sister, you're, you're really well made up, you're, and so forth. And it turns out the reason is because the part of their brain that's been affected by the stroke is the part that has emotional uh, feeling for close close emotional relationship, and it's not sparking. So my sister comes in and I'm not feeling close to her, so it, she must be an imposter. And the brain tells itself a story. She must be an imposter. Uh, and, whereas it's not a problem with, with strangers, because I don't have those close feelings, so they have no problem. But anybody who's really close to me is a huge conspiracy. And this happens very, very often, very disconcerting. And it's exactly the same thing. This kind of, on the one hand, need to project onto the material categories which are coming from ourselves. But I think that there's a flip side of it, which is the need to experience the world, not as sheer chaotic, you know, Brownian motion, but there's a story you know, every one of these filmmakers that it's always talking
2: about, uh, and I'm not including Errol Morris in this, who I already said is one of the top guys, but and they're always saying, Oh, you know, at the end of the day, I'm a storyteller. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's this real sense of like, Oh, this is great. And I can see why it's great. Cause it gives us a real brush in our brains. Cause it's supposed to be there. Like it's the thing that makes us really good at hunting or whatever. <laughs> And it makes me really worried and uncomfortable uh, that this is going that this goes on in all of our brains uncontrollably, and is this powerful, I guess you would say, bias in our lives towards narrative. Mm-hmm. You know, unless it's, unless it's narrativized, it's it's not absorbed.
4: And if you narrativize something that isn't rational, It will be absorbed. Well, there's an interesting problem. I mean, I I would phrase it differently. I would phrase that in most of our lives, we are treated like robots. We are treated like Pavlovian dogs. And I find, on the contrary, that the capacity for narrative, for experiencing things as narrative, and for getting a rush out of the narrative is actually kind of hopeful in that context. Uh, It reminds me, uh, I was in an interesting... uh, dialogue I I didn't know him, but I was put into the position of having a dialogue with Arthur C. Clarke. And this was a book about uh of space pro photography. And he was celebrating it. He was saying, look, this is fantastic. Uh it'll turn out in the wide arc of history that human the function of human beings was to take matter, material, silicon and so forth, and turn it into machines that could go everywhere and that and they will leave Human beings behind, and that's great. And this is the first evidence we're seeing of it. These great space probes that have taken these incredible photographs, and and it's going from uh, uh, you know Homo sapiens to Machina sapiens, and this is fantastic, and so forth. And it's just the next thing. And in my afterward, uh, he wrote the prologue afterwards, and I said, no, I mean it's not quite right. I mean there's something wrong, and, and essentially what there's wrong is that machines, no matter how brilliant. Cannot experience marvel or wonder or awe, my, my, my daughter once wrote a little piece about this where she, where she said that uh, that the function of human beings is to wonder at the universe because without us here, all that balance and beauty and logic would be going to waste. I mean I think in much the way that 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 your gallbladder secretes bile and your pancreas secretes insulin, your brain secretes stories, and that 's not frivolous. That's 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 great. Well, my guest
2: Lawrence Weschler's new book is called Uncanny Valley: Adventures in the Narrative, and it is all about uh, the business of being w- wonderful and marvelous. Uh, Ren, thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much. So I had. A really great time talking with Ren Weschler on this show, but there was a thing that I really wanted to talk to him about that we weren't able to fit into the radio version of this interview, and that was the Museum of Jurassic Technology here in Los Angeles. And Lawrence Weschler wrote a a brilliant, brilliant book about it that was a Pulitzer finalist and is one of my favorite books of all time. And we had this whole great conversation about that that you can find on our website at maximumfund.org so uh, if that sounds at all interesting to you and i assure you it is please visit our website at maximumfun.org and, and check out that additional conversation with lawrence weschler and, and check out that wonderful book which is called mr wilson's cabinet of wonder it's bullseye i'm jesse thorne look i'm not really a history guy I like to watch The American Experience sometimes on PBS, I admit. I recently enjoyed watching the Panama Canal episode. But I'm not the sort of guy who holds up in his study with a few volumes of Herodotus and a tumbler of scotch so I can really wrap my head around the ancient world. There are guys like that. Actually, given the choice between real history and made-up history, I'll pretty much always choose the latter. Basically, my ideal historical film is Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Party on, dudes! That's why I'm such a fan of the Twitter feed, Fake Civil War. Why celebrate the 150th anniversary of the Civil War with a bunch of actual
0: information?
2: And you can just laugh at stupid jokes. Some of my favorites are really stupid,
0: like this tweet. The Battle of Gettysburg was the bloodiest battle of the war only because the authorities covered up the chainsaw battle of Shark Attack Mountain.
2: Some of the jokes on fake civil war are
0: kind of weirdly full of pathos. Like, whenever the South lost a battle, Robert E. Lee told his troops he wasn't angry at them, just disappointed, which was worse in a lot of ways. There are ones that are just really
2: silly, too. Like this one.
0: Tennessee sold more war bonds for the South than any other state which is why they got the pizza party.
2: We understand the Civil War through that gauzy PBS lens. It's kind of hard to imagine the North and the South duking it out without the sad fiddle music in the background and the letters from soldiers being read by sad Hollywood
0: stars. That's why it's so great when the fake Civil War writes, Many think the Civil War might have ended sooner if soldiers hadn't kept looking at the camera for the Ken Burns documentary.
2: The absolute best, though, just take this most hallowed time in our history and the most hallowed men in our history and make them perfectly,
0: pathetically human. A month ago, Fake Civil War wrote Let's just say that if Lincoln were alive today, he'd need to erase his browser history a couple times a day.
2: You can follow the sacrilege on Twitter at Fake Civil War. That's it for Bullseye this week. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones, our producer, Julia Smith. Nick White is our editor. Our intern is Colin Walzak. Special thanks to Roman Mars. Thanks to Paul Ruest at Argo Studios for engineering the New York side of our Chris Gethard interview this week. Our theme music is Huddle Formation by the Go Team. Thanks to the Go Team and their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use that. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org on Twitter at Bullseye, or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. Remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. I'm Jesse Thorne.
1: Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation.
2: Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. Hey guys, want to hear longer versions of the conversations on this week's episode? Go to MaximumFun.org to find them. And share them with your friends. PRI Public Radio International.